In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent, normally in London, but currently in Edinburgh. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin, but currently in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, the Brexit gods have been hard at work. There is Michel Barnier's tell-all secret Brexit diary, with candid revelations about his four years at the helm as the EU's chief negotiator during not one but two Brexit treaties. And Boris Johnson sends in the Navy. Or, as social media would have it, we've had the closest thing to an Anglo-French naval battle since Trafalgar, all over new fishing licences issued by the tiny crown dependency of Jersey. Don't ring Bergerac. Brexit Republic will follow the clues to determine who's the villain in the latest fish wars. And as the votes are counted in England, Scotland and Wales, we'll assess the Brexit effect in Hartlepool and beyond. But first, Sean, to you, as you sit in Edinburgh and we're recording this on Friday afternoon, we haven't seen anything approaching an exit poll yet. So what's the atmosphere been like on the ground in Scotland and what's expected and how much of a Brexit factor has there been in this election? Well, the atmospherics here are very different to what they are, if I may use the phrase, down south, uh, down in London. You get a really different perspective on the UK when you cross that border uh, and come to Scotland. Uh, Different type of media, different type of politics, different type of laws, as we know, and different attitudes to things. And Brexit has definitely played uh, a part uh, here in Scotland over the past five years, ever since that referendum. Uh, If you remember, they had a referendum on independence back in 2014. They lost it fairly narrowly, 45, 55, uh, 55 against independence. And that seemed to be that. It was, uh, as the then Prime Minister uh, David Cameron said, uh, a once in a generation referendum. But two years later, we had the Brexit referendum. And Scotland, well, Brexit only garnered 38% support uh, here in Scotland, 52% UK nationally. But down in Hartlepool, where they've had that by-election overnight, 69% voted for Brexit there. So already we are seeing the dynamics of Brexit playing out on an electoral basis. And, uh, well, I guess let's start in Hartlepool, shall we? Because that's the one where we actually have a result from uh, the by-election that took place yesterday. Uh, A place where you look at it, uh, at the history of it, and you'd say Conservatives have no chance here. But then you look a bit closer at the... uh, pattern of voting over the past four or five, maybe six uh, elections that have happened. And you see the build-up of a pro-Brexit vote. Uh, UKIP initially, then the Brexit party, but starting off with about three and a half percent of the vote, building up to seven percent. Then suddenly 
they got 28% of the vote. Uh, that was in 2015 general election. They pushed the Conservatives into third place uh, at that point. And that was one of those real alarm bells that were being rung in 2015 that led uh, to David Cameron conceding uh, that referendum on Brexit uh, because there was this, seemed to be this demand in certain parts of the country at least. Uh, but here in Hartlepool, very definitely that demand for Brexit was there. It uh, tailed off a bit in the 2017 election um, with Theresa May um, because Brexit had happened in the referendum, but then picked up again spectacularly in the 2019 election. So there was a 25% block of votes for the Brexit party uh, racked up by Richard Tice, the then party chairman, uh, in the 2019 election. And uh, where that block of votes went was going to determine the outcome of the uh, by-election in Hartlepool. And we've seen overnight uh, that 10,000 or so votes uh, that were there for the Brexit uh, idea on the Brexit party, uh, they've largely gone to the Conservative Party, to Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister that has delivered uh, Brexit uh, to the people who voted for it. And that's a theme that has been uh, hammered home, as we know, over these past few years of Brexit, because people voted for it in a referendum, uh, the Conservative Party and certainly the Brexit wing of the Conservative Party said, we must give the people what they have voted for. Well, in the case of Brexit, in the case of Hartlepool, Boris Johnson's party did deliver Brexit uh, to the people there and they seem to have rewarded him uh, with their votes and gone against the Labour Party which have held that seat really since 1964. Uh, there's been a few constituency boundary changes, but they've, it's been a solid Labour Party seat um, for well over half a century, but it flipped. Now, that's highly unusual. Government Governing parties don't usually win by-elections. It's usually where people get to protest against the, the government and its policies of the day. It's incredibly difficult for governments to get a seat that's been held by the opposition. I think that's only happened about four times since 1950 in British uh, by-elections. Uh, but the Tory party pulled it off last night, and not by a small margin, by a very big margin, 7,000 votes. It was a really thumping, resounding win for Boris Johnson uh, and his vision of uh, a Brexit party. Right, One but the- I suppose, Sean, the other thing is he also has the fair winds of the vaccination rollout at his back and Labour's candidate choice might have played against it as well. So while Brexit may have been a factor, was it the overwhelming catalyst? Uh, varying opinions on that. I mean, I think you, you certainly should not discount the Brexit factor. And one of the things that Tory strategists honed in on very early on was that the Labour candidate, and you mentioned him there, uh, he was a Remainer. He had previously been a, a Labour Party MP for a, a nearby constituency in Stockton South, I think it was. Uh, he had been quite vociferous as a Remainer uh, in the whole Brexit debates. He'd lost his seat in 2019. They stood him again, thinking being, we're past all this Brexit stuff now. Uh, this guy's a, a doctor in the NHS. Everybody loves the NHS because of what they've been doing for people during this COVID pandemic. Uh, let's stand him in this uh, constituency and see what happens. But the Tories spotted uh, what they considered a decisive weakness. They said, how can you stand a Remainer in one of the most leave constituencies uh, in the United Kingdom. So they went after him on his record on Brexit. Plus, they were targeting that mobile 10,000 votes from the Brexit party left over from the last election. So uh, I think Brexit was a 
probably, I would say, the decisive issue in that constituency. Now, Peter Mandelson, who used to uh, represent the constituency, uh, says a lot of it is to do with the Labour Party, uh, its own internal dynamics, how it has lost touch with what he calls the uh, culture uh, and the cultural identity of uh, the electorate uh, in the UK, not just in that constituency, but uh, specifically in that constituency, yes, and the wider north of England, uh, and how the dynamics of who votes for the Labour Party has shifted, and the Labour Party itself hasn't kept up with it. A Brexit, though, he said, is part of the overlay of that. It, it kind of overlays the cultural shifts that have changed, that have happened in British politics, uh, and becomes a unifying factor for the Conservative Party, uh, and a dividing factor within the Labour Party. Right. Well, I suppose the the point being their identity politics, which Keir Stammer has attempted to chase to some degree by being a bit more appearing or wanting to appear a bit more patriotic than his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, on the first, uh, in the first instance. And secondly, we saw, I suppose, two other things that might have played to that sentiment in the lead up to the voting, which was the announcement that there would be an amnesty on pre-Good Friday agreement investigations in Northern Ireland or uh, crimes in Northern Ireland which was sold heavily on the basis that it would exempt veterans from prosecution and secondly, of course, sending the Royal Navy to Jersey. How much could they be seen in the context of setting the sentiment of patriotism and identity politics for the elections that were being run, particularly in England? Depends on how cynical you are, but certainly when... you Well, let's assume for the purposes of this podcast, you're dealing with somebody very cynical. Indeed, well... uh... The voters in England, uh, whatever about other parts of the UK, in England they woke up to a set of front pages yesterday morning, election day, that were screaming about Boris sends in the gunboats to uh, to France with strap lines down the bottom about vaccination. So the the Tory press, you know, we're talking about the Mail, the uh, Express, um, the Telegraph, the Times, they were all very heavily promoting the story of the uh, fisheries dispute. Uh, down in Jersey, but the angle was send in the gunboats. And Boris has sent in the gunboats to save uh, British fish, the happiest fish in the world, as we know from uh, Mr. Jacob Rees-Mogg. But that would have played rather well with the uh, core uh, Brexity type electorate that the the Conservative Party have been trying to attract. Whether you call it a dog whistle or whether you call it a very loud klaxon, certainly that story was everywhere yesterday. There was even a a hashtag trending on social uh, media, hashtag war with France. Again, it was bash the foreigners. There were some briefings to the media coming from the uh, well-known Downing Street source, that oft-quoted figure, uh, saying... This is typical of the EU. They panic and go to, to over the top as soon as a problem arises. Uh, blaming the EU uh, for uh, this dispute, <laughs> which is pretty good, um, considering that it uh, was the French uh, that were in dispute with the authorities in Jersey over fishing licences for a relatively small number of fishing boats. But hey, uh, who cares about the finer points and details if you can bash the EU on an election day, uh, why not do that? Right, also, okay. we've got the, the, that military uh, block of voters, uh, the issue of um, prosecutions of soldiers uh, being, as quote-unquote, dragged through the courts is the phrase that keeps being used over and over again. Uh, that issue has built up, uh, resonates with a certain uh, block of voters. And again, 
uh, it would have helped those briefings. They would have helped to, uh, I suspect, drive votes uh, or motivate or mobilise people to come out and vote uh, on the day. That one probably more of a dog whistle than the uh, very loud klaxon that was going on down uh, in Jersey. But also the day before the uh, election, we had the vaccines minister doing the early morning media round. Didn't have any specifically big news to, to say, but he was out there talking about vaccines. And of course, that just keeps reinforcing that message that this government has done well on getting people vaccinated. Uh, and again, they keep selling the vaccine as one of the great benefits of not being in the European Union, one of the, the absolute dividends to the people of Brexit, uh, which is you've got your vaccine ahead of people in the, the EU. And again, they use that as a stick to beat the Labour Party and Keir Starmer in particular, and saying if we'd have followed your policy, we'd be still in the EU and we'd have been stuck with their uh, slow coach vaccination rollout. So every way that Mr Starmer has tried to turn and position himself, he's been whacked down and he couldn't really do what oppositions traditionally do, which is oppose everything uh, vociferously and actively because we're in the middle of a pandemic Real politics has been suspended. It requires that kind of uh, all-party approach to handling a national health emergency crisis that really stymies opposition parties from doing what they do best, which is opposing. And the one area which he was trying to launch attacks on Boris Johnson, uh, Sleaze, the uh, Flatgate, the Prime Minister's wallpaper and who paid for it, that doesn't seem to have cut through with the voters. Either they reckon it's not important or they don't know about it, or they do know about it and they just don't care about it. Right, OK. Well, let's go north of the border, seeing we'll come back to the fisheries and the ins and the outs and the rights and the wrongs of it uh, and get, obviously, the point of view from the other side of the channel uh, with Tony in just a second. But go north of the border, Sean, where Brexit is far more a factor in what's driving the dynamics of the election. The SNP, I suppose, is having the dual benefit of being the incumbent government during a vaccine rollout at the same time as being the opposition to the London government it has every advantage in fighting an election where it is at the moment. Is it capitalising on it? Yes, as far as we can tell, uh, it is capitalising on it. But what it's trying to do uh, is the SNP is win an overall majority. And it's trying to do that in a, an electoral system that is specifically designed to stop parties winning overall majorities. It's not impossible. They did do it once before in 2011. And that was important because... Under the then leadership of Alex Salmond, they were able to turn to Prime Minister Cameron and say, look, this is the will of the Scottish people. Uh, overwhelmingly, they've done something extraordinary here and given us an overall majority. Now, we want uh, a referendum on independence. And Mr Cameron gave them that independence uh, referendum, which they did lose. But they are saying the important thing about that was the precedent that it set. And as we know, in the Westminster system, precedent is really, really important. So if you can win uh, an overall majority, the precedent is there for being able to demand that Westminster give the power to the Scottish Parliament to call legally uh, another referendum. And that's important because people have pointed to what happened in Catalonia a couple of years ago, uh, where they didn't run a, a, a legal referendum um, in agreement with the government, uh, the Spanish national government in Madrid, and all kinds of trouble ensued from that. Uh, the SNP say we will only have a legal referendum. People then say, well, what if Boris Johnson says, as he said all along, I'm not going to give you a referendum. They say, look, when we have 
uh, an overall majority, he will not be able to resist the will of the people because, hey, he's a Democrat. He understands that when people want something and vote for something, they have to get it. And in this case, what they're voting for is another uh, independence referendum. Right. However, I should I just, point out, just one more thing, Colin, yeah. even if they don't uh, get that magic number of 65 seats, there will still be a, a majority for an independence referendum because the Green Party, which have been propping up the minority government for the past five years, they are in favour of another referendum. They are in favour of Scottish independence. And they're doing quite well in these uh, elections, uh, according to the polls. They're expected to pick up additional seats. So there will be, by all accounts, uh, a pro-independence majority in the next Scottish Parliament. We just don't know at this stage whether it will be composed of an SNP overall majority plus the Greens. Right. And the SNP, of course, when they were in the European Parliament, sat with a group that involved Greens as well. So they can divvy that up if the day ever arrives when Scotland re-enters the European Union, which is the promise of the Scottish National Party. And when the last independence referendum was being fought on the terms Scotland would go out on its own and how it would interact with the European Union. This, to some degree, is where the arguments for independence came a cropper as things were forensically fact-checked and probed and everything else. There seems to be less of an appetite for that. This time around, post-Brexit, it's less about the forensic examination of facts and more about the sentiment. Is that fair to say about the dynamics of the Scottish election, at least at this stage? Yes, it is. Uh, And also the fact that, as Nicola Sturgeon never tires of pointing out, we're not in a referendum about independence at this stage. So don't ask us about the details about it. We're just discussing the first principles here. Are you in favour of another referendum? When when the time comes to hold one, and she, incidentally, is in no hurry to, to hold one, she just wants the right to hold it, Uh, When the time comes, then they say they'll roll out all the details and have all the detailed arguments. But people have been trying to uh, come back at her because independence is the only issue in this campaign. You've got the SNP on one side saying full on for independence and referendum. You've got the Conservatives saying we are the Unionist Party and we are going to stop any referendum. If you want to stop independence, you vote for us. Very clear. And you've got Labour in between the two of them. Again, like down in England, lacking a clear message, lacking a clear identity and getting squeezed between those two pretty firm positions. Uh, But the nationalist position is going to uh, prevail in the elections. Then it becomes a a constitutional battle, an ongoing headache for Boris Johnson and his team down in London as to how they handle uh, that particular issue. But yes, EU membership is very much on the cards. And back in 2014, people were being told, if you become an independent state, if you vote for independence in this referendum, you will have to leave the European Union and there's no guarantee that you'll get back in. In fact, countries like Spain would probably veto your membership from getting in. So if you want to stay in the EU, vote to stay part of the UK and we'll all be happy. Of course, two years later, that all changed and Scotland was taken out of the EU against its will, very much against its will, and now wants to get back in and sees independence as the only way it can get back in. Right. Okay, Tony, to you, I mean, has it been much of a talking point in Brussels, even on a sort of a a speculative or academic level where people talk about the terms under which Scotland would re-enter the European Union if that day ever arrived, a sort of a, a reverse Brexit or an entry by Scotland into the European Union? I mean, the terms are laid out in treaties as to what criteria would have to be fulfilled. We've also gone through the rehearsal of the border dispute 
with the Northern Irish Protocol mm. and everything else. How much has that framed any discussion of a potential re-entry of Scotland into the European Union post an independence referendum? Well, any conversations are are happening in private. I mean, this is such a an explosive issue that nobody publicly wants to pronounce on Scottish elections or what that might mean for a referendum on independence and, and what an independence result might mean for Scotland and, and the European Union. I mean, people who are against Scottish independence often refer to an interview with uh, José Manuel Barroso, the former commission president back in, I think, 2006 or seven or something, where he said an independent Scotland would, would have difficulty in, in getting into the EU quickly. Um, but, I mean, if you ask people, they will say, look, you know, anybody has the right to be a candidate country uh, for the European Union so long as they're within the sort of geographical framework of Europe. And if Scotland fulfills the criteria... Uh, economic, uh, political, all the democratic credentials and so on, then, of course, they would have to entertain an application. But, you know, beyond that, people are not going to start, you know, th- throwing their hat in- into a discussion about what the, the rights and wrongs of it. Uh, but, you know, it's it certainly people will, will look at it very carefully. And I think, to be fair as well, the, the Scottish National Party does a lot of work in Brussels. You know, they do have quite a bit of outreach they have, have got people on the ground here working the phones, knocking on doors. And if there is a referendum, you can be sure that that will be a major push uh, on their part. Right. OK. Uh, Tony, to return to what we were discussing there earlier and the issue around uh, the ships being sent to Jersey as French fishing boats were blockading the port of St. Helier. What are the facts behind this? Because apart from the sentiment which Sean has gone into and how that played into the general feelings in the UK, the issue of who's right and who's wrong or what exactly is going on there. Maybe talk us through that first. Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary story. And, and as Sean has alluded to there, I mean, there, there's there's elements of ealing comedy to this uh, and, and, you know, tragic comedy as well if something goes wrong when you start sending gunboats in and of course after the UK sent to Royal Navy vessels the French sent to maritime patrol boats up as well to to get back to the basic facts of this the Channel Islands so Jersey and Guernsey in particular they're not members of the EU they never have been they're, they're not part of the UK they are crown dependencies and they have had a treaty with France called the Treaty of Granville, which has governed access to fishing waters around Jersey and Guernsey. I think they're, they're Sark, I think might be another island there. I apologise in advance to any Channel Islands people listening in. But th- that was all fine uh, for years. And even despite Brexit, because Jersey was not part of the common fisheries policy, that could have continued Um, after Brexit. But at the last minute, for whatever reason, France wanted that arrangement they had with Jersey to be bundled in to the trade and cooperation agreement, uh, the future relationship agreement, because, of course, that dealt with the future relationship with the UK on fisheries. Uh, And so what that meant then was that on the 1st of January this year, when when the treaty took effect provisionally, because the the treaty had only been concluded on Christmas Eve, 
nobody had fully understood the fine print of what the fisheries agreement meant. So and now that Jersey had been kind of bundled into this agreement, uh, th- they decided to issue temporary licenses to French fishermen who have fished those waters for decades. Now, those were four-month licenses that were expiring uh, at the end of April. And lo and behold, when those licenses were renewed, French fishermen discovered that there were these arbitrary, uh, apparently arbitrary, and new conditions attached to the licenses, uh, whereas before they were allowed to um, fish for 40 days a year in uh, in those waters. Suddenly they were allowed to fish for only for 10 days or 11 days. Uh, and they were suddenly going, what, what, what on earth is going on? And that's when things blew up. Um, now, there is another dispute between France and the UK over access to the waters around the UK proper uh, fr- from 6 to 12 miles. Uh, and the, the UK have were supposed to issue 40 licenses for French trawlers to to go back to those waters post-Brexit and they've only issued 20. Uh, And the reason for that is that they have, the UK have said, we need evidence that you have been fishing there between 2017 and 2020. The French were going, hang on, uh, you know we've been fishing there. The UK saying, well, show us the evidence. Uh, and th- this has caused uh, a lot of upset already before the Jersey thing kicked off. So once the Jersey thing kicked off, you, you had um, French fishing boats blockading uh, the port at St. Helier. Uh, and then, of course, in advance of that, Boris Johnson sending in the um, the, the, the two uh, Navy vessels. Now, uh, talking about blaming the EU for this, because this is all part of the free trade agreement, the European Commission has been kind of embroiled in this and it seems to be the case that Jersey issued those licenses without consulting uh, the European Union, without notifying the European Union that there were changes in these in the terms of these licenses for these 40 boats. Uh, DEFRA, the, the UK uh, Department of Agriculture and the Environment, informed the, com- the Commission about these Uh, new licenses that have been issued. But the commission is kind of saying, well, you should have notified us before they were issued. And uh, technically, this could be a breach of the trade and cooperation agreement. So with gunboats coming in, and with suddenly talk of a breach of the free trade agreement, uh, you know, this thing escalated very quickly. uh, And they're trying to de-escalate it just as quickly. Um, Now, if if it turns out that, you know, the, the Jersey should have informed the European Commission sooner that they were changing the terms of this license, then, okay, they might be in breach of the how the, the agreement works. The question is, though, you know, would 27 member states suddenly want to run this up into a formal dispute uh, settlement issue with the UK, bring it to arbitration just a few weeks after the treaty is formally ratified, all because... You know, 41 French boats feel that they got the wrong licenses from a tiny, um, you know, UK crown dependency right. uh, called Jersey. So, so I mean, I think there, there, it's quite possible that, you know, France has marched its troops up the hill 
uh, in quite a dramatic way. And of course, the French fisheries minister said that that's, France could cut off the electricity supply to Jersey, which gets 95% of its electricity from France. Um, but, but you know, n- now that they're up there, the question is, well, you know, what are they going to do? Um, I mean, the, the, the rationale for these new conditions, as far as I'm aware, is that the, the, the Jersey authorities say they, they need to preserve um, whelk uh, fisheries around the Jersey islands, uh, Jer- Jersey waters, and, and sea bass. Uh, it's, a, it's a breeding ground for sea bass. Now, apparently, whelk shouldn't be a problem, according to experts I've spoken to. Uh, sea bass, on the other hand, yeah, there is a problem everywhere with sea bass, apparently. Um, and Jersey would be entitled to restrict fishing there if there was a danger to particular species. But again, you have to inform the European Commission in advance and you have to make sure it's non-discriminatory. So in other words, if you're going to block French fishermen from fishing there, you also have to block your own fishermen uh, from fishing there. And if it's if it, if it turns out that they haven't prevented their own fishermen from uh, chasing whelk, um, then that is a problem. That's that's uh, discrimination against French boats, and that's a bit more serious. Right. But, so, but the the, the, uh, the the threat of retaliation of cutting off ninety five percent of Jersey's electricity supply that it would be a notional possibility if after arbitration there was found to be a breach and it was escalated up to that level. The idea of the French pulling a lever any time soon and turning the lights out in Jersey no, is, I, no, is not I don't happening, think, is it? No, I I I don't think in any realm. Would France be justified in cutting off ninety five percent of the power of? I mean, when when it when we talk about something going to arbitration under the TCA, um, you know, there's a long process. The complainant brings the complaint forward. The other side has four four weeks or two months or whatever to respond. If the complainant is still not happy with the response, then it goes to arbitration. If the arbitration finds on, in favour of, of the complainant, in this case the EU, then Britain has to reply and, and rectify the situation. If they don't rectify the recommendation or, or apply the recommendation of, of arbitration, then they are in breach. And then the EU is entitled under the free trade agreement to take measures. Now, Generally speaking, they would be tariffs. You know, right. it's not like they're going to say to France, "Okay, you can pull that big lever." Right. Down it it in sounds Bologna like a long and arduous and process. Of Plenty of time to get solar panels up on the roof. Anyway, while while all that is absolutely, going on. yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's inconceivable that things would get to that point over licenses for forty-one boats. But then again, you know, we know how sensitive and political the whole fisheries question has right. been. Right. I think it was an unfortunate a slip by one of the French fishing representatives that introduced the comparison to Trafalgar into into the equation at the outset of this, Sean. But just before we leave this issue, uh, fishing and the fishing communities in Scotland, you mentioned around 30-odd percent of people had voted in favour of Brexit in Scotland. A lot of them were in coastal communities. Uh, has the fi- Has the, I suppose, the unrealized potential of Brexit for the fishing community played into the voting preferences at all of people in fishing communities in Scotland or is it just too early to tell that at this stage? A little bit early but I don't think it's going to to, uh, feature too heavily there. Uh, Again like most coastal communities they tend to be concentrated in a handful of places like Peterhead uh, up north towards Aberdeen Way. not necessarily places where the SNP would be expected to do well anyway. I think the, the electoral pattern uh, is fairly well fixed uh, up there. Um, 
also those uh, communities, they've, yes, they've been feeling it, as we know. Um, we've heard all about the, the bivalve mollusks and the, their prawns and what have you, not being able to be exported to mainland Europe of boats landing in Denmark rather than landing uh, in their home ports in Scotland in order to get their catch uh, into the EU market, basically being left to uh, do what they can. They also seem to have missed out on the uh, impact of the failed talks between uh, Britain and Norway, uh, which um, resulted in no agreement last week. Uh, Britain, this uh, now independent coastal state, uh, was engaged with talks with Norway about Arctic cod uh, fishing. They used to have uh, a bit of quota up there uh, under the EU uh, agreement, uh, and the Norwegians had uh, access rights to sell their fish into the British market. Uh, as a result of the talks uh, last week, the Norwegians still have the right to sell their fish into the British market, but British boats are now being kept out of the Norwegian fishing grounds for Arctic cod, so one of the nation's favourite fishes, which they have to import uh, or go off into the f deep waters of the Arctic to fish themselves, uh, they can't fish themselves. They have to buy it all in from uh, foreign suppliers. So they are now materially worse off. Most of that fleet, however, not uh, in Scotland, apparently. A lot of it uh, down further south in Hull uh, in England. But still, uh, that was really not a win uh, for Britain uh, in, as an independent coastal state um, delivering for the fishermen. That story, I have to say, didn't really grow legs um, in the British media uh, and was certainly nothing like the explosion uh, of coverage that we had over this Jersey fishing licences issue, which is much less consequential. Right, okay. Tony, just b before we get into Michel Barnier's uh, book, The Northern Ireland Protocol, and how it's progressing at the moment, apart from the sort of blood-red rhetoric on the front pages of newspapers, there has actually been an improvement in the mood music behind the scenes. The EU's ambassador to the UK has had their credentials recognised, all of the credentials of a full state. So are things moving along and in, in a pragmatic direction on the protocol and where are things at on that at the moment? Well, well they're moving slowly uh, and there, there is progress in a number of areas. But, you know, I think there's been a little bit of a setback on the most sensitive issue, which, of course, is food, you know, moving food from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Yes, as you say, they did reach an agreement at the G7, Dominic Raab and Joseph Burrell, uh, the British Foreign Secretary and his opposite number, the uh, EU's High Representative for Foreign Policy, did have a meeting and produced an agreement that does restore full diplomatic honours to the European ambassador in London uh, and, and also for staff working there. And apparently it is a very detailed agreement. Uh, it's not just kind of ticking a box. And it seems to me from talking to people here in Brussels, at least, that the EU have pretty much got everything they wanted out of that process. And they were concerned that other countries around the world, if it seemed that the EU was being downgraded in London or given a slightly second class uh, protocol uh, relationship, then other countries around the world would might do the same. Uh, so this was a very important issue for the European Union. And as such, they denied access for Lindsay Appleby, who is the uh, UK's head of mission in Brussels. They denied him full access to senior officials in the European Commission and the European Council. So one assumes that that will be uh, restored as well. But on the protocol, 
I mean, I think we spoke in the in the past few weeks about these technical talks that are ongoing. They're, they are in touch on a daily basis. They are attempting to pull together some kind of joint document, perhaps in June by the or by the end of this month, that would chart a course for a comprehensive solution on the outstanding issues of the protocol. The British were pushing this idea that on food, the EU should really take a risk-based approach to consignments of food of base, you know, of animal origin, meats, eggs, dairy, coming into Northern Ireland supermarkets from GB, that they should take a hard look and say, well, what is the real risk of this of these products either entering the single market uh, over the border in from Northern Ireland or uh, posing a threat to consumer health? And the UK were saying, look, you know, sausages coming from Lincolnshire or whatever could, you know, shouldn't be regarded as as if they came from Argentina. No disrespect to Argentina beef producers, but the point they were making is, you know, they're, they're from Britain, which has been following EU sta- food safety standards for decades. We're still more or less following the same standards ourselves. Why should this be a threat to the single market? And there was quite a debate within the European Commission in DG Sante, which covers that whole area, and within the legal services about this. And Eventually, they kind of concluded that, you know, the, the the EU's whole body of law governing food safety is based uh, on the precautionary principle. And that pre- precautionary principle aims at zero risk to human and consumer health uh, when it comes to food safety and animal uh, health. Uh, and therefore, this idea of a kind of a pick and choose what's really a, a big risk and what isn't is simply not compatible with that precautionary principle and is not compatible with the EU's own legislative regime. So essentially the EU have said, look, that's not going to fly. What will fly from our point of view is an SPS agreement like we have with Switzerland with alignment with between the UK and the EU. In that scenario, you will get rid of 80% of the checks and controls on the Irish Sea why not think of that? Of course, the UK, as we've said many times in the podcast, uh, have flatly ruled out any uh, question of, of aligning with EU uh, food safety rules. But there is a catch here. And, and the EU is saying now quite cleverly, I think, it doesn't have to be forever. Why don't you align with the EU until you strike a free trade agreement with the United States? Because the belief is in Brussels that the real reason London doesn't want to align with EU food safety rules is that that would then constrain their room for manoeuvre in a free trade agreement with the US, which, as you know, uh, would probably involve America demanding uh, a greater opening to US beef producers, the whole question of chlorine-washed chicken, uh, hormone beef, and so on. So what they're saying is, look, uh, you know, we understand that you don't want to be constrained. Why don't you align with us until that free trade agreement is concluded because it might take four, maybe more years. And then we we visit the, uh, we revisit the situation. Right. And then that transfers the, tr- the pressure back domestically that whatever, it, at whatever point uh, a trade agreement is concluded with the US, if that day arrives, then that has to be hammered out in Parliament as to what standards would be deviated from. And it becomes a kind of a fractious internal debate with people talking about potentially yeah. lowering standards and that creates pressures of its own. Yeah. And, 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 and yeah, and that, that's a good point. And, to, to follow through, 
you know, then there would be pressure on, well, if you do go for this liberal free trade agreement with America, then that means a hard border on the Irish Sea again. So you can see how this does kind of put the UK in a slightly difficult position, this proposition. Right. Uh, to that book then that Michel Barnier has, has penned, have you seen an advanced copy? When's it out? When when will it be available in all good bookshops? So people, listeners to this podcast, no doubt in particular, can get out the highlighter pens and mark up their favourite passages. Yeah, so the the book is was published in French on Thursday of this week. It's called uh, La Grande Illusion, uh, The Grand Illusion, which is actually a title from a Jean Renoir film uh, from 1937 about French prisoners of war in Germany in the First World War. And that in turn was based on a book by a British journalist um, in that was written in 1914. Uh, so apparently this the, the Jean Renoir film is all about, uh, you know, ultimately humans get along with each other and they that should allow them to rise above fascism and, and war and all of that sort of stuff. Right. So I'm not sure what kind of message Monsieur Barnier was transmitting with the title, but there, but there you a, go. A subtle subtle one. So it's it's out in English in October, so people will have to wait until then. But I did receive on Monday a an advanced copy, which I ploughed through uh, in French with uh, buckets of Google Translate and uh, Harrop's French Dictionary, but got a fairly reasonable sense of of the the narrative and, and where he's going with it. Right. Who does it in the end? Who's guilty? Well, it's Michel, Michel <laughs> Barnier with the length of lead <laughs> piping in the Burley Mall. It's, fi- it? it's 550 pages of, you know, a very dense detail on every twist and turn of the Brexit negotiations. I mean, stuff that we obviously would lap up given our predilection, but right. um, and and not not too many surprises in terms of his standpoint throughout the book. Uh, I mean, he, he is you know, clearly flying that flag of this is Britain's problem. They forced this on the rest of us. We are simply trying to defend European interests and pre- and prevent a hard border on the island of Ireland. And my God, look at the kind of people they have running the show in the UK, people like David Davis, um, you know, who he speaks about in somewhat unflattering terms. Dominic Rabb gets a pretty harsh uh, treatment. He, he describes... Rab as having a kind of a messianic glow when he first met him. Uh, and this was, of course, around the time Theresa May was was peddling her checkers agreement, this UK-wide customs arrangement that was getting her into all sorts of trouble with the, the Conservative Party. And at one point, he had a very heated discussion with Rab. Uh, Rab said, uh, you have to accept this British idea of a, a UK-wide customs agreement uh, and Ireland has to be dealt with in a broader global context. And if you don't agree with our recipe, then uh, the talks are over and we'll blame the EU. And uh, to which Barnier said, uh, you know, never did Theresa May threaten us. Uh, she understood the obligations that the British government had towards Ireland. And if that's your attitude or if this is the new government line from London, then I will end these talks immediately <laughs> and tell the European Parliament. Um Overall, yeah, there, there are not too many surprises, but some very colourful descriptions of his his private view of people like Theresa May, who he, I think he had tremendous admiration for, knowing how difficult it was for her over time. 
very frustrated and impatient with the DUP. Uh, he talks in quite detail about a number of visits that Arlene Foster and the DUP delegation made to his office in Brussels. Um, at one point observing that he didn't think Diane Dodds, the MEP, and Arlene Foster liked each other. <laughs> right. um, that, the D, that, that the DUP accused um, the commission of being Dublin's puppet. Dublin wanted to restore or place a border on the Irish Which, of sea. course, would make them Bosco. You've lost me on that one. Ireland's favourite puppet, Tony. You you obviously haven't... Uh, you, you missed out on children's... Or the best of RTE children's television in I your dairy childhood, obviously. I, I was, yeah. Uh, yeah, just, yeah, just you can you can direct me to the YouTube videos and I'll, I'll, I will be fully appraised. Go on anyway. Uh, question so here, Tony. Did you check the index and see does he name check you in there? Of course, the first thing I did, but uh, there is no index, in fact. So um, I've read, I think, about 400 pages at this stage. So if I, if I make an appearance, um, I, I, haven't, I haven't hit a jet, of course. That w- wouldn't matter to me as, as a, an objective journalist. Does he even no. mention the podcast? Adam, Adam, Adam Fleming makes a couple of appearances, uh, which I'm sure he's delighted about. Our colleague at the BBC, um, who, who was a regular stalker of Michel Barnier at every turn, um, but I mean, I th- I th- how did he respond he to that accusation speak. by the DUP that the the commission was Dublin's puppet? Well, well, his, I mean, he he was kind of angry with the DUP because I mean, his, you know, b- basic narrative throughout is: look, we didn't decide on Brexit, we didn't have a vote, we are trying to clean up the mess, and both the UK and the EU and Ireland have said they want to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland and protect the peace process. What we have done is to draw up a difficult but pragmatic and practical set of arrangements that will avoid a hard border. And he said that the DUP simply just don't want any kind of ownership of what they voted for. They don't want to deal with the consequences and they haven't put forward a single alternative that would work uh, to avoid a hard border. And, you know, I think he was seeing the DUP's alleged intransigence on this in the context of the trauma that Theresa May was being dragged through day and day, day in and day out in the House of Commons and with her own party. Right, and the DUP is doing its bit to make sure that Northern Ireland is no different to the rest of the UK at the moment by having an election at the same time as everybody else. It's just for the leadership of the DUP and we should have a result of that uh, on May 14th. So looking ahead then, Sean, um, No doubt, as you busily scribble down on your to-do list, get a copy of Michel Barnier's book. What's what's ahead of you? A long day today, obviously, and and what in the coming days? Well, a a long weekend of it, uh, Colin, because of the COVID pandemic, uh, the elections have been affected to the extent that you can't count as fast uh, or in the traditional manner, which would have meant staying up and working through the night. They did that in the Hartlepool by-election, Uh, But for a national general election in places like Scotland and Wales and all those English parliament uh, council elections, mayor elections, police commissioner elections, there's just too many votes to count and they can't cram loads of people into the same room. In fact, they've had to to, um, hold over some elections that should have taken last year and, and cram them in. Uh, with this year's set of elections. So it's a really big process that's been gone through, but they can't put that many people in the room to count the votes, so everything is slowing down. Here in Scotland, they started this morning, Friday morning. We'll get about half of the seats uh, filled uh, by tonight, and then the other half, hopefully, by tomorrow night. But it might well run into Sunday, and that might be the case 
uh, with some of the local uh, election results in England. In fact, some of those results we mightn't have until the early part of next week. So there's going to be a bit of uh, sitting around and waiting. But the main uh, thrust of uh, the uh, electorate's verdict uh, should be well known uh, by uh, Sunday lunchtime. And I, I expect the Sunday talk shows to be full of this kind of stuff. But of course, the big event next week is the state opening of Parliament uh, on Tuesday. Uh, and that's where uh, there will be a new Queen's speech. In other words, a new government programme setting out what their legislative intention is for the next year. That's where we'll be looking at to see if those briefings, anonymous briefings about changing the uh, policy in Northern Ireland and the Stormont House Agreement on prosecuting uh, people for past uh, alleged crimes uh, does indeed come to pass and they go for some kind of South African style truth and reconciliation commission uh, instead of a criminal process. Uh, that would be one thing to watch out for. Also, what other ideas uh, get pulled out as a result of the uh, electoral uh, verdict of the people, things that are popular, Brexity things, uh, conservative things, uh, levelling up uh, agenda things, as they call them, shorthand for investing more money in the north of England and moving more civil servants into the north of England or indeed here in Scotland uh, to try and uh, weaken the case, I guess, for the uh, union. So a lot of new policy initiatives expected to come uh, from the British government uh, during the week. Right. Busy week ahead of you. Bring plenty of iron brew back from Scotland to keep yourself fueled for the coming days. Tony, what's ahead of you? Well, Colm, on Sunday, there's going to be a, a big uh, set piece in Strasbourg, which was has only just been kind of confirmed, uh, launching the Conference on the Future of Europe. Uh, so this is going to be a big thinking by the EU on to what extent it needs to reform or change or, or adapt following 10 years of crises, really going back to the financial crash and uh, followed by the whole question of terrorism, Brexit, uh, the pandemic, etc. So that is going to be launched on Sunday in Strasbourg. Um, and then on Monday, there's a foreign affairs minute meeting in Brussels talking about a whole range of issues, Western Balkans, Russia, Iran, uh, and so on. And then on the Brexit front, we are waiting to see if there is going to be any talk of a joint committee by the end of May, which would be uh, a joint committee, of course, it brings Britain and the EU together on managing the protocol. David Frost on the UK side, Maros Shevchevich on the EU side. Will they meet uh, and have a joint committee to show progress? So if they do, it means they have made some progress. They would, one presumes, produce this document or roadmap uh, for the way forward. But I don't think we're going to see any big breakthrough on the food safety issue before then. It might well be that they have a meeting alongside the Joint Partnership Council, which of course is what brings the both both sides together for the future relationship treaty. Um, possibly get news of that next week. And again, talk of Mr. Frost and Mr. Shevchevich having a stakeholder meeting in Northern Ireland to get more views on how the protocol is going down. Right, and you'll be done, no doubt, fully finished the book by then and you can answer Sean's question as to whether or not you get the mention before the final <laughs> pages r- run through your ads. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly. demanded from the publisher. Okay, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoyne, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Kildare at home this week. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's London correspondent, but happily this weekend in Edinburgh, Scotland. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, still in Brussels. Thanks for listening.